0: This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC.
1: Well, this is a cliche. I'm sorry, but it's true. We're living in a new political reality. We say it all the time. It couldn't be more true than it is right now. Let's start with the newly elected Speaker of the House, Republican Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Politico went out and took a straw poll of some of his colleagues in Congress. The question that a lot of people are asking about Mike Johnson, which is, what do you know about Mike Johnson?
2: He's an election denier and has been lawless in his... um, Pursuit of having Donald Trump remain president.
3: Everybody likes him because he's a nice gentleman. He's got good character. I googled him, and um, I know he's from Louisiana, and that's about it. Humanitarily wise, he took in a foster child,
4: took him into his home, raised him. He's a pleasant guy. That's all I can say.
1: <laughs> the voices there of. Members of Congress, Deborah Ross, Democrat of North Carolina, Republican Don Bacon of Nebraska, Democrat Jeff Jackson from North Carolina, who just got drawn out of his district there, Republican Ralph Norman of South Carolina, and Democrat Jerry Nadler from New York City. So what do we know about what kind of legislation is on the new speaker's agenda? And later, we'll hear the latest on former President Trump's legal trouble. I'm Todd Zwillick of Vice News, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from Capital One. Offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: All right. Let's get into it. Joining me now in studio is Ron Elving. He is not a member of Congress. He is senior Washington editor and correspondent for NPR. Ron, good to see you as always. Good
3: to be with you, Todd.
1: And on the line with us is Margaret Taleb. She's Axios senior contributor and director of Syracuse University's Institute for Democracy, Journalism, and Citizenship here in Washington. Margaret, great to talk to you as always.
2: Thank you.
1: Hi, Todd. Hi. 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 Good to have you. So, Ron, um, the chaos over a House speaker went on for weeks. It dragged from disaster to disaster, from Steve Scalise to Jim Jordan to Kevin McCarthy and back again to Tom Emmer. And then Mike Johnson happened really fast. Who is he?
3: Mike Johnson had a minor role in leadership, but that is an important element, I believe, in how all this happened. He was the number two person for the Republican conference. That doesn't sound like much. Puts him about number five on the leadership ladder. He'd only been there since 2017. It was when he first took the oath. And uh, he had gotten into leadership. His other distinction was he'd been elected to head a group called the Republican Study conference or Republican study group. That's a conservative outfit that used to be seen as the anchor on the right for Republicans in the House, but then was in some degree supplanted in that role by the House Freedom Caucus, which was formed out of that group by Mike Meadows, guy who got pretty famous as Trump's chief of staff, and also Jim Jordan, who was one of the previous nominees for speaker who couldn't make it. So these guys said, no, the House Republican study conference is not right enough for us, and we want to get tougher. So, you know, somewhere between 2030, on some votes, maybe 40 Republicans were identifying with this group. That drove Speaker John Boehner out of office. It discouraged it discouraged Speaker Ryan to the degree that he just decided not to run for re-election, mm-hmm. and it finally drove out Kevin McCarthy.
1: It brought Kevin McCarthy to power with a sword over his head. The whole one vote and you're out, that was all this group you're talking about. Um, Margaret, as soon as Mike Johnson took the gavel, then the reporter, the reporting started about all of the positions that he's taken on oil and gas, on climate change, on abortion, but also on election denial. Um, He was part of the effort, a big part of the effort behind the scenes to rally Republicans to vote against Certifying Joe Biden's election on January sixth, and he was a big part of rallying Republicans to support a lawsuit out of Texas that said overturn the election in four important states. Um, that's a big deal. What else do we know about him on the on the question of Joe Biden's winning twenty twenty?
2: Well, it is a big deal, and I think it's a big deal because when you look at um, the uh, way that uh, Mike Johnson became speaker, it was because the efforts to make Tom Emmer the speaker crashed and burned after Donald Trump intervened to say that he was basically a rhino and couldn't be trusted because— Tom Emmer had been on the other side of this. Tom Emmer had uh, voted to certify the lawful election results that we all know what happened that made Joe Biden the president of the United States. Um, I think that uh, there was a sort of a recognition, uh, a moment of fatalism among uh, sort of the institutionalist slash moderate slash uh, swing district um, House Republicans that said, there will not probably be um, a successful candidate for speaker among those who mm. had moved to certify.
1: I mean, Margaret, Joe they, they all gave up. Ken Buck, when Jim Jordan was running for speaker, went on television and said, I will never support somebody who can't say Joe Biden won the election and Jim Jordan won't say it, therefore, no speaker for Jim Jordan. Um, Mike Johnson won't say that Joe Biden won the election either. And Ken Buck and a lot of others just said, mm, okay.
2: Correct. And um, uh, I, I look, I'm observing it the way you are, so I can only tell you what, what the reporting points toward, but it's a combination of um, added piling on political pressure to get a speaker, any speaker in, in order to head off a shutdown, in order to deal with the Israel crisis, um, and in order to deal with political pressure they're facing internally, and and sort of, to your point, a recognition that um, they couldn't find any other path. But I think, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, Mike Johnson, he's a clean slate. You know, he hasn't made anyone that angry, and we don't really know what he'd be like as a leader. But we do know a lot about his record. He is um, he's a social conservative who's deeply aligned with Donald Trump, and uh, as are his views on... Uh, abortion, uh, LGBTQ policy. Um, He's maybe slightly more open to Ukraine funding, but he's moving this week in one of his first acts as speaker to uh, split off, to separate uh, Ukraine funding from Israel funding to push for a standalone um, aid package for Israel. And so I don't actually think that we're going to be that shocked and (laughs) surprised by, by Mike Johnson's approach to leadership, because I think you know, past will be prologue.
1: Well, here's something that might be shocking and surprising. Underreported, in my view, we, we talked about Mike Johnson's role and record when it comes to election denialism and trying to help Donald Trump overturn the election. But he's also trafficked in false conspiracies about Dominion voting machines and their association with Hugo Chavez. Listen. You know, a software system that is used all around the country that is suspect because it came from Hugo Chavez's Venezuela. I should reiterate, there's nothing true about that. It's completely false. That was Mike Johnson from a radio broadcast. Ron, this is Sidney Powell-level conspiracy theorizing here. This is not just, uh, I took a vote as a member of Congress to not certify.
3: That's right. And Mike Johnson has flirted with various conspiracy theories in his political life and also in his life as a conservative activist lawyer. Uh, He is what you would have to call a faith-forward evangelical Christian. This is the sort of person who, in his very first act as speaker on Friday, uh, led the group of Republicans in a word of prayer. And in his very first fundraising appeal, which he sent out that same day, uh, talked about God three times in the first few paragraphs and quoted Scripture. So if people are not prepared for this, they're going to be a little taken aback for someone who wears it on his sleeve, quite to this degree. And that, when he was an activist within the Southern Baptist Convention, which is one of the evangelical churches, by far the largest. Uh, When they were in some struggle over which direction they were going to head in, Mike Johnson was active in a group that was pushing them further to the right. That is to say, in theological terms, more fundamentalist direction and uh, trafficking in conspiracy theories at that time as well.
1: He has said in terms of policy that if you want to know where I stand on any issue, just crack a Bible. Um, it's not very specific, I have to say, and if I took it literally, I might be a little bit disturbed by that. But um, having given the Bible a close read myself, Margaret, um, is there concern given how much power Mike Johnson now has with the gavel, given his past activities in the in the Congress when it comes to overturning the election, that he might um, he might make moves to prevent Joe Biden from holding on to the office if he wins in twenty twenty four Is that a concern?
2: Well, I mean, there are certainly those who are uh, expressing those concerns. But I I think, you know, when you look at the array of candidates who were going to be poised to become House Speaker, in that sense, he's not that different from uh, Jim Jordan or any other number of uh, conservatives from the right flank, um, because, look, uh, this reflects the majority of the Republican Party base at this moment. Uh, And uh, I think that's just the reality. And um, he's the Speaker of the House, so he's also third in line to become president. Like, elections have consequences. Leadership fights have consequences. And um, Mike Johnson's elevation to House Speaker does speak to where the House Republican conference is right now.
1: Well, I think that's exactly right. And let's go back to him and how uh, he addressed the House when he took over last week.
3: Uh, First, uh, a few words of gratitude. I want to thank... Uh, Leader Jeffries, I I do look forward to working with you on behalf of the American people. I know we see things from very different points of view, but I know that in your heart, you love and care about this country and you want to do what's right. And so
1: we're going to find common ground there. All right. It's a very, very nice way to get started. Let's talk a little bit about the agenda. Margaret went there a little bit with Israel funding, Ron. Um, Putting the election stuff aside, there is policy to be made. What is awaiting Mike Johnson now?
3: The first decision is whether or not to split off Israel aid, which is obviously important symbolically and also materially for Israel in this moment of crisis. Uh, it's not at that large an amount of money, but it's certain things that the Israelis really need right now. $14.5 billion worth is not an enormous amount. It's a, a minor fraction, really, of the $105 billion that Biden is asking for for Israel, Ukraine, and other purposes. So... What's going to happen with Ukraine? I think that's the real question. I believe Mike Johnson has voted either against or to slow down aid increases to Ukraine uh, since the Russian invasion. So he has been a skeptic, to put it mildly. And the people in Ukraine have got to be chilled to think about this man being speaker.
1: We're going to head to a quick break. Back with more
0: in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Charles Schwab, with its original podcast, On Investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, Axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, gang, let's get back to it. Uh, Margaret, um, Ukraine funding, Israel funding, funding for Palestinian aid also. Um, What Ron is getting at is that Joe Biden has made this request all bundled together. Let's pass it all and tie the political fortunes of all this funding all together. Now that Mike Johnson is in charge of the House, it's going to be something different.
2: Well, it's going to end up with Senate Republicans being the real lever on, to some extent, the deciding point over this. I think you're going to see a Mitch McConnell versus J.D. Vance kind of battle royale where uh, the House Republicans will have the ability to slow or block things unless. The Senate Republicans unify and just roll on through, and this is all going to come together as a couple of other things are going on: a November seventeenth shutdown deadline that the new speaker uh, yes, is also that going hasn't to gone, have gone away. It has not gone away, and also when you're looking at the uh, foreign funding, the Biden White House's approach has been to uh, look at sort of the different constituencies in the House and Senate for uh, beefed up security aid or foreign aid to say Israel and Ukraine are connected in terms of um, national security and, uh, you know, um, uh, democracy and and U.S. allies, but also China, uh, uh, money for the border, that if you put all these together, there's something in it for everyone and you can get a coalition of Congress to sign off on it. What you're seeing the new speaker um, driving is a conservative Republican largely House, but Republican effort to say, hey, how about if we just do Israel and Taiwan and leave Ukraine off to the side? And so that's very concerning for obviously the Ukrainians, but also um, a lot of people who are very concerned about uh, Russia's next moves um, in Western Europe.
1: And Joe Biden in his speech last week to the nation, prime time from the Oval Office, really rhetorically tried to tie those two conflicts together in the minds of Americans obviously trying to trying to build the common equities that you're talking about and it may not end up that way in congress ron margaret just touched on something very important in the background which was november what was it margaret 17th
2: yeah but who's counting everyone's counting right. <laughs> okay
1: uh, <laughs> which which is a long way of saying another government shutdown this is the thing that broke the the straw that broke kevin mccarthy's back finally is Mike Johnson in a better position to keep the gun, o- keep the government open and keep his gavel than Kevin McCarthy was?
3: He might be. And the, the key word here is trust. Kevin McCarthy did not have the trust of the House Freedom Caucus or that fraction of it that was big enough to deny him, eight people basically, were, that was enough to deny him the speakership, to take him out of the speakership, to remove him because he had agreed to a rule change that made that possible. So he needed to hold together A larger group of Republicans who were going to give him the benefit of the doubt as he said, look, let me negotiate this and we'll keep the government open, but we'll also reduce spending. The Republicans who voted against him, voted him out, had lost faith in Kevin McCarthy's willingness to do that because he bargained with Biden on the debt ceiling in June and he bargained again to keep the government open in September. And that's what they're opposed to. They're opposed to having Israel and Ukraine in the same bill with help for the border. They're opposed to that kind of what they would call log rolling where you just get everybody on board by putting something in there for for everybody. And that is how Congress has done business for as long as anyone can remember. And that is exactly what they're opposed to. Hmm. So McCarthy was just trying to get it done. And by doing that, he alienated the hardest core of this anti-government, anti-spending group that just badly wants to Reduce the whole size of the whole enterprise. You
1: know, um, Mike Johnson has a little bit longer leash than Kevin McCarthy did. That's what Ron is getting at. Um, speaking of the length of his leash, let's talk about something that snapped Kevin McCarthy's leash to. It's impeachment. If, in fact, all the evidence leads to where we believe it will, that's very likely impeachable offenses. You know, that's listed as a cause for impeachment in the Constitution.
3: You know, bribery and, and uh, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Bribery is listed there, and, and uh, it looks and smells a lot like that.
1: Notably, Ron, he's saying it looks and smells a lot like that. He's not saying evidence, but he is steering the House toward impeachment, or so it sounds. So it sounds. And
2: that
3: is language not entirely different from what McCarthy's been using, that if it turns out to be what has been alleged or if there's something underneath this smoke uh, other than you know, a smoke machine – then we need to do something, and the something we have to do is impeachment. Now, of course, they know perfectly well that impeachment is a dead letter in the Senate. But, of course, it was a dead letter in the Senate for Trump, but the House proceeded to do it twice. So there are reasons to do it. I think one of the reasons they're interested in doing it with respect to Biden is to balance off the fact that Trump was twice impeached. So they can say, oh, big deal. That was all
1: political. Biden's been impeached too. And if a voter thinks, well, Donald Trump is corrupt, all of a sudden a voter thinks, eh, you know what? They all are. Both guys are. Yeah. Both sides do it. Uh, Guys, let's go to court. There's a lot of news from court. A little refresher if you haven't been filing the following, the filings and motions and orders all around Donald Trump. His felony count is 91 across Georgia, New York, and two separate federal cases. He's pled not guilty in to all of these charges. Ongoing now in New York is the civil trial accusing Donald Trump and his business of massive insurance and bank fraud. Judge Arthur Engeron in New York has already ruled to void Trump's license to do business in New York. But Margaret, what's going on now in that trial? It's, it's weeks long.
2: Well, uh, the news to watch in New York is that uh, Donald Trump's adult children are all going to be uh, brought into court or asked uh, to be brought into court. Um, I think we're seeing Ivanka Trump trying to uh, block her appearance, but uh, that is... uh, if you are following the courts, that is sort of the big news um, out of New York. The much bigger news for this week from a historical perspective is what's going on in Colorado right now. Uh, oh. A historic, historic case um, involving the 14th Amendment. And Yes. Whether- well, you,
1: you you beat me to it, actually. Let's, let's set that up because you're right that it is historic. Today it starts, uh, 14th Amendment, Section 3, Margaret. I'm just going to set it up for you a little bit. There is a trial starting in Denver. People have heard about the Constitution's injunction about the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that if you swear an oath to the Constitution, then you turn around and participate in an insurrection or rebellion against the same, against the Constitution, that you can never hold public office again. Legal scholars will argue that I left some important words out, but that's what it says. Trial in Colorado is, is putting this to the test right now.
2: Yeah, this is uh, as you said. This is a provision that goes back to the Civil War, and um, and a, a, a judge Sarah Wallace uh, on the Denver District Court is is going to be overseeing this process. Um, but it is hugely controversial because, of course, um, there's no precedent for this, and so it, it, un, unknown are all these questions like. Um, what meets the threshold of violating you know, um, you know, this provision, but also where do a candidate's First Amendment rights come in? And I think that's where you're going to see kind of the argument lines break down. It is over um, the uh, Insurrection Act versus the protections of the First Amendment.
1: And is the president of the United States constitutionally a federal officer? Do you have to be convicted of insurrection for the 14th Amendment to take effect, or is it self executing? That's a word that people are going to hear a lot. And by the way, speaking of Harriet, this case is available on live stream on WebEx. Uh, Judge Wallace made sure of that. So you can tune in and watch this case. The first of, I think, Ron. Many. There are going to be efforts in lots of states to try to disqualify. These are state issues because ballots are state ballots. We don't have federal ballots in this country. So Colorado, Minnesota has a case that starts later this week. Michigan has one on file. I think there are others. This is, this is the movement now.
3: That's right. And there's going to be an effort to, in some sense or another, discredit his candidacy with these cases. It, it seems unlikely let's just say, that barring a conviction for insurrection, that it's going to be possible and courts will uphold an actual bar against him being on the ballot in any state. But we'll see. We'll see. There could be developments in the months ahead that make that case easier to make in those state courts. But it is a state authority because the Constitution says the states will determine the manner, et cetera, et cetera, of their elections. And uh, they can kick people off the ballot. There was an effort back in 2008 in some states to exclude Barack Obama from the ballot in some states, because uh, at that time, it was an early version of the birther conspiracy. And they wanted to see his birth certificate before he could qualify. And then they had proposed laws in certain states to require all candidates for president to produce a birth certificate, which, of course, Obama did. But uh, but at the time, that was a live
1: controversy. I, I do encourage people, if you have the time, to keep up with this trial. The witness list, as of right now, as far as I know, is still under seal. But there have been motions filed in this case referring to the testimony of witnesses, one who the motion says was with Donald Trump on January 6th, is aware of his awareness of weapons or violent tendencies in the crowd, making the case for insurrection, which points to a witness that could be, I'm speculating now, but could be Cassidy Hutchinson, could be Mark Meadows, somebody who was a White House staffer. So there's going to be some some high profile testimony potentially.
3: That's right. And that there have been suggestions that, uh, well, ABC News has reported that Mark Meadows is, in some sense, cooperating, has had several interviews with, including with a grand jury, Jack Smith, the prosecutor in the insurrection case. He is certainly in a key position, and his aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, has already told us a great deal about what went on that day. She testified before the January 6th investigating committee in the House last year. So this is... This is uh, this is explosive territory if this is the testimony we're going to hear,
0: but we're still waiting.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking,
1: All right, guys, back to New York just for one second, because I don't want to blow by the fact that something else, else historic is happening. The adult children of Donald Trump take the stand. I think Don Jr. is first. I think Ivanka is scheduled for last. Eric is stuck in the middle, like usual. And Donald Trump's scheduled, I think, to take the stand himself next week.
2: Yes, all of the above.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, but, but it's historic and a big deal, and the future of his business is at stake, um, Let's take a, just a, a quick nod to last week also because of gag orders, which are happening all over Trump's legal universe. The judge slapped him with another $10,000 fine for violating things that the, that the judge said, don't say. Margaret.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the question is, why is Donald Trump doing this? Because he's pretty sure that uh, no judge is going to put him in jail. And because the uh, the publicity and ability to stake out his ground is worth every penny of the $10,000 from a political perspective, right? I mean, his 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 brand is to um, be defiant in the faces what he is trying to cast as, you know, politically motivated courts, and that uh, jazzes up the base. Um, It uh, gets his supporters uh, excited and also mistrusting of um, the existing establishment. And so um, those are all important levers to him. He has for months now made a calculation that um, his ability to use the courts to help him politically is what he needs to lean into rather than trying to dial back or act um, more appropriate to, you know, try to appease the judicial system. And so we're seeing this play out in real time and, you know, how much are the courts going to take? There's a, a institutional incentive not to lean into political prosecutions of Ex presidents, that's you know for the protection of the country, the sanctity of the Constitution, the American way, and all kinds of stuff. But you don't have a lot of ex presidents behaving the way Donald Trump has, and so uh, this really is uncharted territory uh, when he, um, uh, t- you know, here's what the judge says and says, "I'll double down and and come right back at you with." This comment that <laughs> defies the gag order. So, yeah. you know, I think it's uncharted territory like so many other things. And, and
1: speaking of doubling down, there is a limited gag order in the federal coup case as well. This is Judge Tanya Chutkin, federal judge here in D.C., who slapped a limited gag order on Donald Trump. Don't attack witnesses. Don't attack the court. Don't attack prosecutors. You can, you can criticize me if you want, but you can't poison the jury pool in this case. That gag order was paused momentarily just last night. Judge Chutkin reinstated it, Ron, and I noticed that within minutes of her reinstating it, Trump went on social media and attacked Bill Barr, who is a witness in this case.
3: Who is, of course, his own former attorney general and somebody who was uh, unquestioned in his loyalty to Donald Trump up until the point of the denial of the election results, at which point he stood his ground and said, Sir... Uh, There is no evidence that there's any voter fraud being found and had a barnyard expression for what those accusations were. Uh, Trump took that very much amiss, tried to fire him on the spot. Uh, He stuck around for a couple of weeks, but was eventually – eventually he left office voluntarily and uh, since then has been very forthright about the – the status of all those claims and the fact that Trump surely had been informed, reliably informed, repeatedly informed that he had lost the election. So he's attacking Bill Barr, even though, of course, Bill Barr is going to be a witness in this case. He is defying the judge's order intentionally. And I think he enjoys the theater of it for, for, for starters. And he's clearly you know, setting the agenda, not his lawyers. He's long since defied hmm. lawyers' advice. And he sees this ultimately as hardening his base and that
1: that's the key to getting back into the White House. And also laying down lots of legal maneuvers that his lawyers are doing, motions to dismiss, motions to quash, First Amendment rights, selective prosecution, all intended, um, the experts say, to put down bookmarks for appeal. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on Fulton County in Georgia, guys, because now Four of Donald Trump's co-defendants in that sprawling racketeering case have now pled guilty. Three of them are his lawyers. Um, Margaret, how important the guilty pleas so far in this case? And I'll, and I'll point out some of the names that people will have heard. Sidney Powell is a big one and Jenna Ellis, less known, but maybe her guilty plea is, is even more important. Where does that case stand?
2: I, I think you're right. Collectively, uh, these do sort of continue to build the case. I don't know if it will matter politically, but when we look back in history, that uh, even the lawyers you know, around him uh, p- pled um, in relation to allegations of election fraud. Janet Atlas is a little bit different uh, from the others because of um, sort of the nature of our, her elocution. She has admitted um, that, uh, not only that she engaged in election fraud, but that she, um, you know, f- used false, f- false assertions to try to overturn, uh, the 2020 election. Yeah. She lied. And yes, yeah. I mean, very, very much not only said that she lied, but, uh, wept, you know, uh, <laughs> during her appearance before a judge there, uh, there is a thought, uh, maybe let's say a hope among some that she could become, uh, a star witness, you know, uh, the sort of the nail in Donald Trump's uh, political coffin. Coffin. I don't know whether that's true, but I think she does have the potential to be a really uh, significant witness beyond just the theater of this. And um, because she really is sort of, um, she was such a you know, outspoken, you know, champion of the MAGA movement and is now just saying he didn't win the election and she was part of that lie. It could be really important.
1: Well, Jenna Ellis's plea agreement requires her to cooperate fully, not only appear in court, but anytime prosecutors ask this, this, and this, did that person say this? Were you there? She has to talk. That's part of, or else she goes to jail.
3: And the prosecuting team was savvy in videotaping some of the Discussions that they had had with these potential witnesses, these people who are pleading guilty. So they're not going to be in a position to turn around and say, well, you know, maybe that was a misunderstanding. It's on tape. It's on tape and they can play the tape and they can play the tape for the jury and say, here's what they said. Here's what they have to say now. It's got to be the same. And it probably will be the same. These witnesses are lawyers. They know they're on the hook.
1: Reports are that prosecutors are contemplating or offering, we don't know this stuff happens in secret, plea offers for as many as half a dozen of the 15 remaining co-defendants in this, again, this sprawling racketeering case. Six more dominoes or five more fall. What what would that mean, Ron?
3: It would mean more logs on the fire to some degree, but I think at some point here, uh, when you've got just about everybody joining in the circle and saying it was all a lie, it becomes impossible for Donald Trump to claim that he pursued this election denial on any kind of a legitimate basis at all. He has to uh, abandon that defense at some juncture. Now, will he? Possibly not. But the overwhelming preponderance of evidence Building up here is going to lead to a conviction and a sentence of jail. In the Georgia case, that is that is where we're that's what we're building toward here. And in any normal case, it would be, you know, plead guilty, cut a deal. Given the evidence yeah, against him, I mean, him. you you've had it. Yeah. Well, but this is not in any sense a normal case, and he is playing the entire thing as political, hoping to get back in the office and uh, and do what he can from that office. Now he cannot pardon himself for Georgia,
1: right? state case, not a federal case. That's Ron Elving of NPR. We also heard from Margaret Toll of Axio senior contributor and director of Syracuse University's Institute for Democracy, Journalism and Citizenship. I want to thank you both for being here. By the way, I write a newsletter every week all about these indictments surrounding Donald Trump and about threats to democracy and voting. It's called Breaking the Vote. You can find it at vice.com slash breaking the vote in your inbox every Friday. Today's producer was A.C. Valdez. This program comes to you from WAMU. It's part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick of Vice News. We'll talk to you real soon. It's 1A.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer?